Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, who's associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is William H. Shaw. He is the author of a fantastic new book titled Utilitarianism and the Ethics of War. It's just been published by Routledge. As its title suggests, Bill's new book develops a utilitarian analysis of the central issues um, concerning the morality of war, ranging from questions about the permissibility of going to war and separate questions concerning the um, moral conduct of soldiers and states once war has broken out. Now, as some listeners will no doubt already know, um, a lot of the current literature on the morality of war has a decidedly non-utilitarian cast. And in fact, many ethicists who take up questions about war tend to be overtly anti-utilitarian. That is, the uh, standard line often is that utilitarianism is the, the last moral theory one should want to go to when thinking about questions of war. And it's this uh, aspect of uh, the contemporary discussion of these issues that makes uh, Bill Shaw's book especially interesting. Again, it's a utilitarian analysis of the moral questions arising uh, in war. Um, so there's a lot to talk about, uh, as there usually is. And before we get into those details, we'll begin uh, where we usually do. Um, let's greet our guest. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. It's nice to be talking with you. Oh, it's great to be talking with you, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Oh, I'm flattered to be here. Great. Um, So before we get into talking about uh, utilitarianism and the ethics of war, um, why don't you uh, share a little bit about yourself? Why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, I I fell into philosophy in college like a lot of professors of philosophy. I think um, not for really... Uh, exciting reasons, but I, I like the image. I didn't know much about philosophy, but I like the idea of this being the field that thinks about the big questions. And I even smoked a pipe for about two months because I thought that was appropriate for you know a philosophy major. But, I, <laughs> but even then, I, I like philosophy, but I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And I worked in a law office, I accepted a couple of law schools, and ended up working in the law office for a couple of years and decided that really wasn't for me. And so I thought I would go to graduate school and I had a really negative image about graduate school when I was an undergraduate graduate students were always complaining about how terrible graduate school was and so I thought maybe I'd just go uh, for masters but then I was accepted to do a, a program in, at the at London School of Economics and I thought well great if it's a bust you know at least I will have been out of the country to London and I'll get something out of it so then I you know went off to graduate school and and as you get into it then um gets to be the, the thing that you, you like the best and you can do the best. And so I kind of came into philosophy uh, that way. I initially began working on Marx. I was from the, I guess, the 1960s generation of, you know, 68 and political radicalism among students. And I was very interested in Karl Marx. So my, that was my first book and my early work on Marx. Mm-hmm. But I was, in fact, you know, teaching ethics and got more interested in moral theory and less interested in Marxism. And is particularly on utilitarianism, which has interested me for a long time. Then, um, you know, I've read a little bit about the ethics of war over the years, a few of the kind of most important works, but I hadn't really worked on it in a sustained fashion. And then about oh, five or six years ago, 
an opportunity to uh, be a fellow at the U.S. Naval Academy for a special program they have that invited a few professors from around the country as well as their own professors to, to have a year-long seminar on recent work on the ethics of war. So I was accepted to do that, and there was a great opportunity gave me a chance to work through a lot of the more recent literature more carefully and to try to develop my own kind of utilitarian response to it. So that's kind of briefly my intellectual background and how I ended up uh, writing this book that I wrote. Well, fantastic. Um, so let's let's get into it then. Um, the book, uh, you know, aims to address what are the sort of two big questions in um, the morality of war uh debates, um, namely, um, you know, when may a war be fought or started, um, or, and secondly, um, how, that is, once a war is started, how may it be fought, what's permissible uh, by way of conduct within uh, the context of a war. Um, you aim to show in the book that, um, contrary to what many may believe, uh, util- a utilitarian framework um, can provide some compelling answers to these big questions about war. Um, but uh, early in the book, you you note that contemporary utilitarianism hasn't, um, uh, hasn't contributed much to uh, moral discussions of war. Um, and there's a huge literature developing and there's lots of deontologists and other kinds of uh, even stoical and some uh, virtue theoretic accounts of the morality of war, but not very much by way of contemporary utilitarians. Um, uh, and in this, uh, the contemporary utilitarians seem to break with um, what I was uh, very keen to, to learn in reading your book, that um, the historical utilitarians actually had quite a bit to say about war. Um why don't we begin there then? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, what uh, the trajectory, beginning with Bentham and and, uh, and James and John Stuart Mill, and uh, and ending with uh, Sidgwick, that is the giants of utilitarianism? Can you tell us a little bit about their, you know, how the classical utilitarian tradition has thought about war? That's a really interesting question because, as you say, there's a, there is a quite a contrast between the classical utilitarians who really saw war as a big issue. And it's, of course, natural for utilitarian to think that way when you think of the impact for, I guess, for better or worse, but normally for worse, that war has on human well-being. And even the the preparation for, if you're not fighting wars, the, the being, you know, having an army and being ready to fight a war if necessary, that too diverts resources and directions that, you know, on the face of them aren't the most uh, effective for promoting human well-being. So, it, it struck them as naturally enough as, as a really big issue. Um, however, well, maybe not however, but they um, they were they concerned it in a more applied and practical way, broadly speaking. That is, Bentham spends a lot of time analyzing different causes of war and trying to think concretely of specific steps that societies could take to make war less likely. And in this respect, I think Bentham was really kind of a, a true enlightenment thinker because he wasn't the only uh, he may have been the only utilitarian thinker thinking about these issues but he wasn't the only util- the only philosopher who was concerned about issues of war during this period and both Bentham and James Mill were interested in developing international law in directions that would make uh, both war less likely and more humane as, as it played out John Stuart Mill uh, it didn't write 
so directly about the ethics of war, but he was a very engaged, uh, politically engaged person, as as everybody knows. Um, you know, briefly a member of parliament and quite uh, involved with a lot of the important political causes of his day. So he he often commented on war. He was really a strong advocate of the North against the South and the American Civil War and how important that war was. And so he has got lots of interesting things to say about war as kind of, um, uh, side, you know, side comments here and there that, that are very, very useful. Sidgwick, YCRC is the last of this string of great utilitarians, really wrote, wrote the most about it in not in his book um, on ethics so much as his his main book on politics right. long about the duties of states and international law and the obligations and responsibility of states. And he too is concerned sort of with, I guess, what would fall under political science these days, more sort of the nuts and bolts of uh, how states should conduct themselves and what the rules and, and laws would be. But always from a really firm utilitarian perspective, he, he's interested in what rules would it be best for states to follow, given the realities of the world as it is, meaning what what rules are states likely, in fact, to uh, adhere to or be be brought to adhere to. So I see all these uh, thinkers as as really sort of engaged with, with their times and trying in a really kind of you know, sophisticated but practical spirit of, of trying to, you know, address a real-world problem, namely that of, of war and how it's conducted. Do you have any um, – this isn't covered in the book, but just g- given um, what you've said thus far, do you have any thoughts about – I mean, there are lots of utilitarians doing a lot of important work in moral philosophy today. Um, I guess as, a, as you were talking, I started wondering, like, I wonder what explains <laughs> – um, yes. that that there hasn't been that that until uh, until this book, I, well, maybe I just don't know the literature well. I, I, I I'm not aware of any other sort of contemporary book by a utilitarian about war that is sort of unabashedly utilitarian in its analysis. Why do you think that is? That's a that's a uh, <laughs> that's an interesting and and good question. I think um, there's a couple factors. One is Utilitarianism, you know, it's part of academic moral philosophy. And so utilitarians get caught up, like other moral theorists do, in sort of the most kind of abstract and you might say purely philosophical questions. Um, whereas somebody like Mill or, or even James Mill and Bentham, they are they're, uh, kind of activists first or, or engaged political thinkers first and what we might call kind of professional philosophers secondly. So they, their philosophy is sort of in service to their, their kind of political radicalism. Well, I think for most of us in the academy, um, we get tended to focus more on, on kind of narrower, narrower issues in moral philosophy and in utilitarianism as, you know, there's variations on variations of, of types of utilitarianism. You know, and these are wonderful questions and, and really um, fascinating, but they do sort of divert people to more uh, away from more applied questions. I mean, there are exceptions. I think not with regard to war, but with regard to practical issues. I mean, a, a philosopher like Peter Singer is kind of noteworthy as being someone who's both a utilitarian and very engaged, you know, with specific kind of practical problems like what are 
actual responsibilities to aid people who are in distress in other parts of the world? What are responsibilities to animals? But he sort of stands out as, as you know, somewhat distinct. There's not as much focus by utilitarians on, you might say, practical ethics as one would have expected. And as, as and it, nor as much as the classical utilitarians, they don't pay as much attention as the classical utilitarians paid. And if I can just go on a little bit longer, I think um, one reason those questions are hard because utilitarianism is always, you might say, hostage to the facts of what the utilitarian approach or what the utilitarian answer to a certain situation will be will depend a lot about, you know, kind of detailed factual questions and get into, you know, all sorts of, you know, controversial empirical questions. And I think philosophers you know that's messy and it's sloppy and it's mm. uh, and they kind of shy away from that looking for like a little cleaner theoretical issues they can analyze good uh, very interesting i mean it's just a, it's it's i guess it's striking <laughs> um, yes it is um, um but why don't let let's just let, now maybe the proofs in the pudding let, let's see um <laughs> uh, let, 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 let's see what we've got um so um the uh, so utilit as you were just saying so the utilitarianism is a doctrine that um, in moral philosophy is hostage to the facts as you put it and uh, as you also say utilitarianism is a doctrine that seems um, uh, sort of because of some of its internal commitments sort of highly mutable that is that there are lots of different varieties of utilitarianism and. Um, uh, that feature, uh, maybe th those two features, that it's uh, empirically minded, practically minded, and you know, admits of so many little variants, um, often makes utilitarianism a kind of um, uh, whipping boy because it's very easily caricatured. Um, so, you know, somebody who's who's going to propose a utilitarian analysis of almost anything has got to be very careful in setting up um, the precise contours of, of of what their what their view is actually committed to. Um, which is something you, of course, do uh, in the very beginning of the book. You set out uh, uh, in some detail uh, uh, exactly the style of utilitarianism that you are um, interested in um, picking up as the lens through which you analyze these questions of war. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of utilitarianism that um, that, that we're that we're talking about here? Okay, let me just say one thing uh, in a kind of preliminary way. I, I realized as I was writing the book that I had sort of two audiences in mind. I, I wanted to write a book for people who work in ethics of war, but as you say, have a kind of caricatured view of utilitarianism or don't really understand utilitarianism the way that moral theorists working in the field would understand it. And at the same time, I wanted to write a book for people who are familiar with contemporary moral theory and utilitarianism in particular, but aren't haven't read much recently about the ethics of war and don't really aren't really familiar with the current debate. So I'm trying to write a book for utilitarians who don't know too much about the ethics of war and for those who know a fair bit about the ethics of war but don't know so much about utilitarianism. So in the in the uh, second chapter of the book, I just try to outline uh, you know the kind of structure and underlying commitments of utilitarianism. I mean, just starting at the most uh, basic level, utilitarianism is a kind of what philosophers call consequentialist theory, which basically means that at, at the end of the day, it's the consequences of our actions, the, their goodness or badness, that determines whether our, our conduct is right or wrong. What makes utilitarian 
a specific type of consequentialism is its commitment to human well-being as being the one thing that's valuable for for its own sake. So it's it's um, a type of consequentialism because rightness is wrongness is connected to the goodness and badness of the outcomes or action, and it's what makes it the specific type of consequentialism that is is this belief that for the earlier utilitarians, human happiness, or for contemporary utilitarians, usually speak more broadly of well-being. It's well-being is that is that what makes a, an outcome better or, or worse. What um, I've just sketched the, the the idea that rightness is is a function of the goodness or badness of the outcomes of our actions or the actions open to us. Of course, needs some refinement and and specification. Um, For there's a there are different intramural debates among consequentialist philosophers and utilitarian philosophers, and I try to kind of steer away from those that I can where they don't really affect uh, so much the analysis of war. But one of those questions uh, that I do take a take a stand on um, that is when we're looking at the results of our action and comparing it to the alternatives open to us, are we is the rightness determined by the actual outcome of the course of action we chose or by the anticipated or expected results of that course of action before we chose. And there, there are philosophers on both sides and there's some considerations both ways. The um, version of utilitarianism I favor casts rightness and wrongness in terms of the expected consequences. So the right action to perform is the one that the expected consequences of, of which are better than the expected consequences of the alternatives open to us. With regard to this and some other choices utilitarian theories make, they're theoretically interesting uh, in the world of applied ethics and with regard to ethics of war, probably not so much hangs on which, which way you go as long as you try to remain consistent and, and somewhat plausible in what you're saying. The, I think the main thing um, that I am concerned to stress throughout the book, beginning of this chapter, is that utilitarianism is a much more um, sophisticated and subtle theory than its critics give it credit to, give it credit for. I mean, utilitarians have a basic criteria about what's right and wrong that I've just stated, but they're also concerned about under what circumstances should we praise or blame someone for doing the utilitarian thing or not doing it? What motives and uh, do we want to reinforce? What character traits do we want to try to encourage? One important aspect that I think the vast majority of contemporary utilitarians agree with is that it's important to have adherence to rules um, as the most effective way in many circumstances to bring about the the most good. And in some cases, the adherence to the rules should be really not just be a pragmatic guideline, but in some cases should actually be a kind of moral commitment so that utilitarians will find it valuable in terms of long-term results that people internalize uh, a strong commitment to following certain rules and respecting uh, certain sorts of rights. So I think um, it's that more it's that more subtle move to appreciating the importance of people's character traits, their motivations, and of having people 
in, in many situations, stick firmly to certain rules and respect a certain rights that a lot of critics uh, of utilitarianism, you know, seem kind of you know, unaware of that whole dimension of utilitarianism. And one thing that's are, are we okay? Yeah. Oh, I got a funny message on my Skype. Oh. Um, one thing that's interesting is, you know, there are some important philosophers, you know, last 20 or 30 years who have argued along the start going back, say, to Aram Hare. But really, you know, it's it's not only back in um, Mill, but it's also back in Bentham. There's a lot they, these and certainly Sidgwick. There's an enormous amount of sophistication among the classic utilitarians. They were far from just having this simplistic view that you find in textbook that utilitarians just say, well, do whatever's going to bring about the most happiness case by case by case, and that's all there is to the theory. Um, so for some years when I was younger, I thought, oh, these are really important insights that uh, some of contemporary utilitarians have come up with, and then as I read more and learned more, I, I was really kind of stunned to realize that much of this was already being said back in the 19th century. So there's there's really very, you know, there's no reason for people, you know, critics of utilitarians not to understand. It's not like these are recent wrinkles in theory that we, you know, contemporaries have come up with, but, you know, it's back there in Mill and, and Bentham and, and Sidgwick. Well, just, I, I, it, it, it might um, reassure you to know that um, after uh, having not taught uh, ethics for many, many years, um, I, I recently, uh, you know, went back and and taught a class where we, you know, we read Mill's little um, little book on utilitarianism, and I had totally forgotten how many of the standard one-liners against utilitarianism are actually taken up in that book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's marvelous, isn't it? It really is. That you know, answers all the kind of simple standard objections to the theory. Um, In a way that makes it hard, you know, it's almost like time travel. It seems as if there are parts of, of, of Mill where you think, wow, like – it, it, it's almost as if he had he. It's almost as if he had read Williams's critique. <laughs> it's hard to believe. It's sort of preemptive rather than responsive. Um, well, let me let me just ask one sort of um, before moving on to the to the application of your version of utilitarianism to the questions about war. Um, let me just ask you to sort of make one of those sort of fine philosophical distinctions. Um, uh, that that fills the the pages of of, of our professional journals um, is is your view um, a is your view a version of what one would call rule utilitarianism or is it a version of act utilitarianism that sees the upholding of a rule as a particular kind of act <laughs> yes um, I guess the label that uh, would apply to me is um, what philosophers these days call sophisticated active utilitarianism. Good. <laughs> so it's, it's active utilitarianism that uh, in practice is extremely close to rule utilitarianism, right. but remains active utilitarianism because the, the criterion of rightness or wrongness for acts remains the same. So an action's right uh, if and only if it brings about more expected well-being than you know, any alternative open to you. Um, and in pursuing that goal, trying to bring about as much happiness as you can, it's, it's often 
the most effective strategy to follow certain rules, and as we talked about before, to even internalize in a moral sense a commitment to certain rules. So that in practice, um, as utilitarians, you want people who are committed to certain, have certain moral commitments. I mean, Mill himself says the most important thing from a utilitarian point of view is to cultivate uh, a love of virtue for its own sake. Right. And that doesn't sound like, uh, at face value, that's not like a utilitarian thing to say, not, you know, especially from the supposedly old, unsophisticated 19th century utilitarian. But he's, in effect, saying this uh, disposition has enormous utilitarian value to people who care about, say, virtue or care about, say, justice just for its own sake, not because they're thinking in their mind that this is the best way to bring about well-being. It's not, my view is not a rule utilitarian view because the rule utilitarian actually defines rightness in terms of actions that are in accord with the rule and wrongness actions that violate the rule. Right. So uh, the so-called sophisticated act utilitarian sticks to the um, act utilitarian criteria of rightness but takes rules very, very uh, seriously. Excellent. Um, one more, just again, just uh, a, a sort of uh, a, a minu- piece of minutia among the philosophers, right? Um, sure. uh, just, just to help us set up what uh, what you'll uh, contribute to the the ethics of war stuff. Um, is it right to think, um, as as I think it is, that? Um, for utilitarianism as such, um, moral evaluations are always essentially comparative, that um, the rightness or wrongness of an action is always um, an evaluation to say that some act is right. That's always a shorthand for saying that action was comparatively the best. Yes, at at the fundamental level of analysis, that's absolutely correct, that the right action is only right if it's if it's better than all the alternatives open to you, um, and in some cases, the right action might not be the one that brings about very much happiness. But if all the alternatives are worse, cause more unhappiness, then that would be the right right course of action. It, now, in practice, if you really are encouraging people to follow rules and even internalize the commitment to certain rules, then you're encouraging them to act in a way that um, you might say is, is not particularly comparative. You're, you're saying your general rule, unless you're in you know unusual circumstances, say, is to tell the truth or keep your promises, something like that. And so you would normally in your day-to-day judge somebody acting appropriately because they've kept their promise or they told the truth. Um, but when you push it back to the deeper analysis to the actual application of the utilitarian criteria itself, yes, uh, you're absolutely correct. It, it is it is comparative. It's got to be the alternative that brings about better results than anything else you could have done. Fantastic, and that 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 um, sets up um, uh, your um, sort of one of the main is the, the one, one of the the sort of core uh, proposals of the book. Um, if we turn to um, the actual ethics of war stuff in the book, um, 
and begin with uh, the, the, the ad bellum question, uh, the question of the morality of going to war, um, you offer uh, what you call uh, the utilitarian war principle. Uh, you abbreviate it UWP. And I'm just going to read the principle to you and then ask you just to, to tell us a little bit about uh, how it works and what the dimensions are. So the utilitarian war principle, uh, as you articulate it, says... It is morally right for a state to wage war if and only if no other course of action available to it has greater expected well-being. Otherwise, waging war is wrong. Um, can you unpack that a little bit and tell us how that works? Bob, I thought you were going to say, I'm going to read you um, <laughs> what you wrote here and ask you if you really believe it. <laughs> Oh, I take it you really believe it. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I really believe it. <laughs> um, let me let me uh, back up just uh, on on two little points. So, I, I talked earlier about the uh, classical utilitarians and their, by and large, sort of uh, practical, real world engagement with questions of war from a kind of a utilitarian approach. But, but by by and large, they don't really. Uh, lay down in kind of simple, uh, direct way what the utilitarian approach to war is. And so that's one thing I want to do in the book. And even though the, the principle is pretty simple and straightforward, it's not actually stated um, by Bentham or James Bentham or Mill, possibly a little bit by Sidgwick, um, but they don't make it quite as clear. They say lots of interesting things about war. Um, but they're not going back to kind of lay out their theoretical or implied theoretical commitments. The other thing I want to say uh, about the principle is I, I identified as a specific principle, the utilitarian war principle, because I want to maintain here and throughout the book that one could find this an attractive normative principle with regard to war without being a utilitarian right. that is one might have reservations about utilitarianism um, or maybe lean to some other general moral theory or perhaps be somewhat skeptical of any moral theory and I want to in part try to sell the idea that this is a plausible principle for this limit for this limited domain of war that many thinkers and ordinary people might find attractive even without making a larger theoretical commitment to one particular moral theory. Um, right. So the structure of the argument is not, let's just make this clear for the audience, right? I take it um, the structure of the argument in your book is not utilitarianism is the correct moral theory. Therefore, what utilitarians are going to say about the ethics of war uh, is, uh, is philosophically correct. The argument rather is the utilitarians have a coherent moral theory. That moral theory allows them to say something that looks independently plausible about these moral questions concerning war. And one can accept that utilitarian analysis of the morality of war almost no matter what one's broader moral commitments may be, even if they're non particularly utilitarian. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And I didn't want a book that – which I had spent a book you know, defending or trying to prove utilitarianism right. and, and get everybody to accept it and then go on and say, well, these are its implications for this domain. Um, that would be of very limited interest. Right. So anyway, going back to the utilitarian war principle, 
uh, you know, it's a, as we were saying, it's a it's a restrictive principle it concerns when is it right for uh, a state to wage war. There are you know other entities in the world besides states that wage war, warlike things. I just want, for simplicity, I want to focus on the central and historically most important case, uh, war between states. Um, The totalitarian war principle is pretty uh, stringent. It it doesn't just say that the war has to do some good uh, or that it has to do more good than it does bad, but it has to do uh, more good than anything else you could do. Right. I mean, in most contexts, that just means the war has to do more good than than not fighting the war. But it, it but it sets a pretty pretty high bar. On the other hand, I think, you know, people um, maybe it's wishful thinking my part, but I think sort of people thinking from a common sense perspective won't find this such a bizarre idea that that it for a war to be right, it really has to be better than um, not fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Utilitarian principle is, or the utilitarian war principle specifically, it's universalistic in scope. You have to take into account not just the well-being of your compatriots, but the well-being of everybody who's going to be affected by your decision. Um, and that's something that, I mean, that way of thinking would bring up, you know, if that were accepted, that would bring about a, a, a significant change in how people think about war. I mean, historically... Uh, nations or states have tended to think only about the benefits to themselves or to their citizens. They've um, thought not always about the consequences of their fighting. I mean, or if they do take about talk about the consequences of fighting or not fighting, they may be their consequences in terms of I don't know national honor or historical grievances that they have that have little to do with the well-being of actual individuals. Whereas from the utilitarian point of view, it's really it's the well-being of human beings, specific individual human beings that matters. And the utilitarian war principle is, has to, is saying that before you go to war, you know, you, you've got to expect that that's the, that there's going to be the impact on those human beings is going to be better overall because you've gone to war than, than if you hadn't. Right. And maybe a final point so it uh, would be in, in terms of how it would change people's ordinary thinking is there's not as much hard thinking about what will actually be the results of war uh, bef- there hasn't been historically there hasn't been as much hard thinking about what will be the results of, of fighting or not fighting right. and the utilitarian war principle really invites as careful and close scrutiny as, as political leaders and others can marshal to really, you know, try to kind of game out what what are the alternatives open to us and what are the likely results of following this course of action or that course of action, the likely results in terms of their impact on, on real human beings, not just at home, but also overseas. So I think uh, this simple principle of people, you know, adopted it or, or found it attractive would really tend to change how states think about war. Right. And just to pick up on that last point, it does sound like it's um, um, at least a prima facie advantage of this utilitarian uh, framework that um, it makes the ad bellum question, the question of when it's okay, you know, when it's 
morally permissible to go to war. Um, it t- it ties it so tightly to the postbellum question, right? What happens when the war ends? Yeah. And this, you know, a lot of the standard discussions of war see these as separate questions that don't bear too much on each other, and that does look like a kind of offense to common sense to me. At yeah, least. that's a really interesting point. Yeah, I, I I agree with that because you've got to trace out, um, you know, not just the immediate consequences, but as best you can the longer run results of of the course of action you're undertaking, especially specifically if you're undertaking contemplating undertaking a war, you know what? How's that going to play out in the long run? And um, there are obvious limits to what we can know and what we can predict, but that should, you know, induce us to be as cautious and careful as we can be. Right. Um, I mean, standard criticism of utilitarianism and a criticism that can be anticipated of the utilitarian war principle is people will say, well. You know, it's hard to know what the consequences are going to be, or these are really difficult questions because the future is unpredictable, and 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 all that's true. Uh, it may not be as unpredictable as the critics say, but the future is unpredictable. We can't know for sure. But still, uh, I don't think that impugns the utilitarian goal that you shouldn't fight uh, unless that really is the better course of action open to you. Right. Excellent. Um, let's then just ask sort of you, you, you have a nice discussion of um, uh, the relation uh, between uh, the utilitarian war principle and its ramifications uh, and some of the, 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 the standard kinds of thoughts that just war theorists or you know, moral philosophers working on war who are attracted or at the periphery or in the orbit of just war theory uh, tend to think. Now, just war theory and the people who are uh, in that orbit tend to be largely anti-utilitarian because just war theory tends to look like it's got an anti-utilitarian bent to it. But you're keen to show that the utilitarian war principle can accommodate many of the things that most most look worth accommodating uh, in the just war tradition. Can you tell us a little bit about those arguments? Yes. Um, I approach it from the fact that the utilitarian war principle, um, it's, it's simple, it's general, and it may be difficult to apply in many cases because it's hard to know exactly you know, to predict confidently what will be the the alternative course of action open to us. And so the question becomes, are there some intermediate or pragmatic guidelines that, that we might follow that would help us perhaps to uh, end up, at the end of the day, you know, sticking as closely as we can to the utilitarian war principle? Let me put it a different way. That is, um, it's a criticism that has some merit that the utilitarian war principle is not so easy to apply because of these empirical uncertainties. Given that, are there some um, guidelines or intermediate principles that we might uh, rely on that adherence to which would make it more likely that we would fight wars only when this would be required by the utilitarian war principle? And I suggest that the standard ad bellum principles contained within just war theory, for example, uh, legitimate authority, just cause, proportionality, last resort, and so on, that following these guidelines actually make sense from a utilitarian point of view. We had the idea back already in, in Mill and, and probably Bentham that 
even if utilitarianism states the ultimate criteria of right and wrong, the ultimate goal of, of our moral actions, we need uh, guideposts. We need guidelines to help us achieve that goal as, as best we can. And I think um, the traditional principles of juice ad bellum can accomplish that. They, they can help us uh, analyze in a, in a little more concrete way uh, the question of whether a war would be right for us to undertake because it's hard to imagine a conflict that um, satisfied the, those traditional principles but failed the utilitarian principle. That is, I think um, a war, an anticipated war that fails just war criteria is not going to pass the utilitarian war criteria either. And one that does pass the just war, traditional just war principles, uh, is very likely to also pass the utilitarian war principle. Yet those just war principles, being somewhat more specific, may be a little easier to employ. Um, they're already fairly well known over the centuries. They're taught in our military academies. And um, for, so from a practical point of view, people relied on those. It's very likely they would be making decisions that are in line with the utilitarian war principle. And just, I'm sorry, go ahead, yeah. A just war theorist, I mean, you know, there's different theorists and, and they approach these issues a little differently, but for them, um, these principles are, uh, they determine what's right and wrong. And from the utilitarian point of view, they are kind of aids or guidelines that will help us. So utilitarians don't have to worry, as just war theorists do, about getting these principles as precise and accurate as, as possible. Some just war theorists are worried that there might be redundancies, and so they try to reduce the list of six or seven to four or five, and there's you know, quibbling about their exact formulation, because from the point of view of just war theory, we, you would want to be as precise as possible about these principles because they determine whether war is right or wrong. For us, utilitarians, they can be treated a little more loosely and pragmatically because they don't define what's right and wrong in war. They're uh, kind of rules of thumb or guidelines that the following which will tend to lead towards utilitarian results. Right. And so, um, and, and it might be the case, uh, and, and, and this argument does appear in the book, that some of the ways in which um, traditional non-utilitarian, maybe just just war theorists, um, tend to treat some of the ad bellum, the hard cases for the ad bellum uh, principles, um, look like they're just reasons to think that there's a more fundamental set of moral considerations underlying them uh, that um, are guiding uh, the ways in which people add or detract or contour the standard um, ad bellum principles. Is that right? Yes, and that, that's a, a, a shortcoming I see of most all work in the, broadly speaking, in the just war tradition among contemporary philosophers is there's no fallback theoretical position from which to uh, examine these, the uh, either the principles of ad bellum or the uh, the induced principles. Um, and people, philosophers writing, they end up just 
the appeals to different intuitions about how we would handle, say, cases of self-defense when it's an individual in the civilian world and sort of extrapolate from that about uh, what principles should govern uh, nation states. So um, George Lucas uh, used the phrase, uh, I quote in the book, um, the methodological anarchy of <laughs> justice theory because there's no uh, agreement about what's the foundation of these principles or how we're supposed to refine them or, or interpret them. And utilitarianism offers, I think, a perspective from which you can both uh, make a case why these principles should be taken seriously um, and why they're important, but also uh, from that perspective shows the limits that some of the kind of more arcane debate about some of the principles would be sort of irrelevant from the utilitarian perspective, which treats them more as pragmatic guidelines. You wouldn't have to worry about a, a number of kind of super theoretical counterexamples or hypothetical cases because you're trying to just get pragmatic guidelines that people could follow as a kind of aid to successfully uh, follow the utilitarian war principle. Great. Um, why don't we then just uh, um, move on then to um, this other, you know, separable um, uh, set of questions um, uh, about war. So we were so far just been talking about the just war principle, which is a principle – I'm sorry, the utilitarian war principle, which is a principle – in the first instance, about um, uh, when it's uh, morally permissible or morally right to fight a war. Um, then there are these separate questions, the so-called in bello uh, uh, questions, the, the questions of the conduct within a war. Um, and there too, like in the ad bellum questions, we've got a long non-utilitarian tradition that tries to um, articulate different kinds of moral constraints on what soldiers can do in the course of fighting or what states can do in the course of, of, of waging a war. Um, uh, what can utilitarians say about these questions, these these in bello questions? Um, can they uphold uh, what you call uh, the, uh, the received rules of war? Yes. Um let me just say what what I call the received rules of war. There's there's two aspects to that. One is what's usually called the law of armed conflict, which is you know, positive international law dealing with armed conflict. There's a lot of that related to specific treaties like the Geneva Conventions or uh, before that the Hague Conventions. Some of it is a redevelopment of, you might say, um, kind of international common law set by precedent and tradition. Some of it of the law of armed conflict is settled by international tribunals like the Nuremberg tribunals that you know made certain decisions that are pertinent from the point of view of international law to how combatants should com conduct themselves. So so that's part of what I call the received rules of war. The other part are the three traditional principles of justice in the conduct of war necessity, uh, proportionality, and discrimination and non-combatant immunity. <laughs> I lump those together because I see, and this is a thought that actually goes back to the utilitarian, early utilitarian or proto-utilitarian uh, William Paley, who's, who also identified sort of the law of war could containing both what he called natural law or, or these principles of justice in war as well as the positive uh, law of, of nations because those um, 
principles of necessity, proportionality, and non-combatant immunity, which almost all theorists in the just war tradition agree on as being basic rules guiding combatants or that should guide combatants, those uh, inform the positive law of armed conflict. They, you know, some of the general provisions of the law of armed conflict state those principles. Others, more specific provisions, kind of are ways of reflecting and filling out those three principles. So there's kind of overlap or interconnection between those three general principles and the more specific uh, requirements of uh, the law of armed combat. So I lump all together as the received rules of war, which is in the modern world is what the military of all modern democracies and a number of other countries are taught mm-hmm. um, as the rules that, that they must follow. From the utilitarian point of view, the basic justification for the uh, received rules of war is the enormous humanitarian benefit that comes from encouraging and trying as hard as we can to get combatants to adhere adhere to these rules. So it's a consequentialist or even sort of instrumentalist defense of the received rules of war that their their moral importance lies in they're making possible the reduction of needless violence in war. The goal being to have um, (laughs) the war with uh, as with a, with no superfluous violence and indeed as, as little violence overall as as is possible. So so that's the utilitarian approach to it, and I think it contrasts favorably with various non-utilitarian ways of thinking about the rules of of war. Somehow those are supposed to be anchored into our intuitions. The non-utilitarian approach to rules of war, <laughs> our intuitions about right and wrong conduct but they end up of necessity you know trading on intuitions we have in peacetime cases about when it would be right to kill somebody to prevent somebody else from being killed or things like that and i think it's only so far you can go trying to reason by analogy from our intuitions and in every in the everyday world to um what should be the fundamental moral guidelines from for warfare in once war is actually broken out once war is broken out we're in a suboptimal situation i mean there's at least one side should not be fighting maybe both sides should not be fighting um it's suboptimal because there's certainly a, a state of affairs that the states could have arrived at that wouldn't have involved war so you're in a you're in a bad situation and from from a utilitarian point of view the, the point of the rules of war is to try to make this situation less bad or um, to try to reduce as much the harm that's being done. And so the rules of necessity, proportionality, protecting uh, non-combatants, as well as the more specific laws of armed combat, for example, how prisoners of war are treated, you know, not shooting at hospital ships, not disguising yourself in civilian clothing, these sorts of things all help to uh, make war a little bit less horrible than uh, it otherwise would be. Right, right. Um, uh, so let me then ask sort of a, one of the uh, one of the staple, the theoretical staples of um, uh, thinking about war, particularly in, in, in the contemporary just war tradition, um, is sort of where 
uh, one, one, one of the places where Michael Walzer begins his discussion uh, with this um, claim about um, the moral equality of combatants, that the combatants, um, even in a case where um, one side is fighting a just war and the other side uh, is not. Um, uh, even the soldiers on the unjust, on the aggressors' side of the war, are to be regarded, from the theoretical perspective at least, as morally equivalent or equal uh, to the combatants on the just side of the war. Um, now, I confess that that's always struck me as a very odd thought. Um, <laughs> I think uh, uh, in everybody's deepest uh, recesses of their mind, they think this is an odd thought. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the utilitarian thinks about the moral equality of soldiers? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, but let me just uh, back up a little bit. Sure. So the uh, utilitarian view is... And, and this is made quite clear in Sidgwick, the utilitarian view is the rules of war, for example, um, restrict your military operations, those that have a kind of military point, re- reduce violence to, um, so it's not excessive in relationship to the military target, and to discriminate um, between civilian and non-civilian targets, and to not ever directly target combatants, and non-combatants, not ever directly target non-combatants, and try to reduce harm to them as, as much as, as possible, that these rules apply to, to both sides. So even if, hypothetically, your side is fighting the morally right war, you still have to follow these rules. Right. And on the other hand, if your side turns out to be fighting an immoral war, then you're, what we care about now, once the war has begun, is that the soldiers adhere to this rule, and which means, in effect, that if they adhere to these rules, and they lose the war, they're not going to be punished. They're not, they're not guilty of having done something criminal if they had you know, kept their act, military actions uh, within the appropriate guidelines. In particular, they haven't killed civilians or if, 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 uh, inflicted excessive or unnecessary harm on civilians. So from the utilitarian point of view, this is, um, you might say a sort of pragmatic concession to reality. We can't have two different sets of rules, really strict ones for the guys who are in the wrong and looser ones for the guys who are in the right. It just it wouldn't be feasible because both sides think they're in the right. And so and who's going to adjudicate that? Since, you know, they've already broken out into the war. So uh, and the, the war is the way they're trying to adjudicate it. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, we, so the goal is to. They hear the rules, and you guys have to stick in within these. Now, so that's a kind of pragmatic argument. Um, Walzer thinks, and some you know earlier just war theorists thought that that's not just pragmatic; that there's a kind of moral basis for it. That the guys and gals who are actually fighting, uh, it's not their job to decide whether the war is right or wrong. Uh, right. You get this. Um, I remember in. Um, and Shakespeare's Henry V, there's a scene where Henry has disguised himself as an ordinary soldier, and he goes and, and talks to some of his men the night the, the night before the big battle. And he's saying, in the conversation, he says something like, well, you know, don't you think your king's cause is just? And they say, well, that's not for us to decide. Right, you know, right. if it's a bad war, then it's on him. Um, we just do, we just fight as we're told. It's, it's really not our job to judge whether his cause is just or not. So that's the kind of thinking uh, behind Walzer's position is that um, 
ordinary soldiers don't have the responsibility and they're not really in a position to be able to judge uh, whether the war is just or not. Their job is just to fight the war in, in accordance with, with these rules. And so there's the moral equality idea is that the soldiers on the unjust side and the soldiers on the just side are equal in the set, are morally equal, and that they both do nothing wrong if they, as long as they fight within the in accord with the rules. Um, now, uh, Jeff McMahon has written a, an important book about I don't know six years or a little bit more ago, you know, challenging uh, that argument and in, in really uh, critiquing it in in great great detail. The um, I mean, McMahon's right in one way that, of course, it, it seems plausible to say that if the war is wrong to fight, then people shouldn't be fighting it, and soldiers are human beings like anybody else, um, and so therefore they shouldn't be fighting it in the war that's uh, unjust. But I don't see that, the totalitarians don't see that as a deficiency of the rules of war. Right. McMahon's sort of critical of the rules of war. He thinks they don't capture the real morality of the situation. But that's not the job of the rules of, of war um, it's not to the rule job of the rules of war is not to say to the Nazis you shouldn't soldiers you shouldn't be fighting in the first place um, the job of the rules of war is to try to mitigate the damage they do and get both sides to kind of adhere to these standards um, so you have this important debate that's drawn a lot of tension between Walzer's statement of the kind of classical uh, moral equality from Bant's position and McMahon's very robust and important critique of it and utilitarians are, have kind of nuanced view they see some you know, truth in what Walls are saying as well as some truth in what McMahon is saying because for them the rules of war have this I guess you might say more instrumental justification right. they're not trying to capture what, what McMahon thinks of as the deep morality of the situation Whereas from the utilitarian point of view, there's, there's no morality to the situation other than whatever's allowed or prohibited by the best possible set of rules for, for warfare. Was it, um, it there was a, I have to say it was odd in reading a book about war that I um, laughed out loud, but um, uh, there's a, a quotation, I think it's Walzer against McMahon, where Walzer refers to McMahon's view as what war looks like if it were, it would look like if it were a peacetime activity. Yes, I think that's, that's very, yeah, I, I thought it was very clever. <laughs> um, I think it really strikes home. There's, there's, um, you know, a lot of recent work, and there's an, you know, anthology on this uh, cited in, in my book, you know, where philosophers in the just war theory, they're really interested in the kind of details of when would somebody be morally liable to uh, to violence in a in a war situation, they would like war to meet out violence only to people who deserve it, or in some way have made themselves liable for it, uh, or for whom it would be just for them to risk a certain level of violence. So they so basically they like violence in war to be measured against what what individual desert calls for. And that's sort of what Walzer has in mind. I think right. you're imagining that war is sort of like a peacetime activity and you want it to uh, 
meet our standards of what would be right and wrong in peaceful activities and have war somehow, you know, distribute um, harms according to, you know, what people deserve or, or uh, what they've made themselves liable to. And I, that just, I think that's just crazy that, that <laughs> um, you know, war can't possibly ever do that. And yeah. to say, well, anyway, we're going to talk about this or it's kind of theoretically important, it just seems like uh, a kind of irrelevance to to the war. I mean, um, so again, the utilitarians stress the kind of enormous, you know, benefit of having combatants on both sides adhere to these to the law of armed combat to the to the uh, you know moral principles underlying the received rules of war, and that. What we're trying to do is take, again, as I said before, take a bad situation and somewhat ameliorate it to make it a little less bad than it would be otherwise. Right. And there's really no other kind of moral concern than that. And, and the kind of hypothetical question of what, you know, what an individual would deserve or not deserve, um, it just seems, you know, it's, it's so theoretical, it's kind of out in space from my point of view. Right, right. Well, Bill, it's it's been great um, talking to you about your book. Um, I know this is a, 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 a cruel thing to ask somebody who's just published a wonderful book. Uh, but one final question um, before we sign off on this episode of New Books and Philosophy. Uh, what's your next project? Will you continue working on these issues or move to something new? I, I may go on working on some of them. Um, some of the issues in the last chapter that we didn't talk about, about um, what are – the obligations of, in particular, of officers when they're confronted with immoral or orders mm-hmm. or wrongful wars, and I think um, that could use some, you know, that could use some more thinking. There's not been very much written about that, certainly not from a utilitarian perspective, and that's something I would like like to pursue uh, in the future. But um, I'm a little bit older than you, Bob, and I'm just beginning my retirement. I'm now. I was retired in August and just be teaching one semester a year for the next few years. So it was a doubly cruel question. Out of the book writing, uh, book writing world. <laughs> well, um, uh, I will keep an eye out for uh, any any further discussions of uh, of these issues or anything else from you. Um, but for now. Um, Bill, I want to thank you uh, for your time today and uh, for making time uh, to talk to us on New Books and Philosophy about uh, really what is a a, a very, very interesting, fantastic even uh, new book. Um, And thank you, listener, uh, for joining us for our discussion uh, of the book. Once again, the book is by William H. Shaw. Uh, He has been our guest. And its title is Utilitarianism and the Ethics of War. Um, published by Routledge 2016. Um, I encourage everyone to go out and and take a look. Uh, Thank you, and thank you, Bill. 